The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Job isn't so much a book of revealing secrets. It's the story of a believer, a suffering believer, who struggled to understand what was going on, while behind the scenes, his great God was always at work. Because this is a communion Sunday, I have less time to preach, as I think you realize, and I thought maybe I better not stay with Job today, because this passage we come to is of such crucial importance, and I'll have 10 minutes less, but it is of crucial importance, and I feel burdened to speak from it, even though we have a little bit less time. So let's follow. You follow, please, as I read. Job, we know the opening. The man is introduced. The discussion about him in heaven we dealt with last time through verse 12 of chapter 1. I pick up in verse 13, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to God's holy word. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen are plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell on them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. 
All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God abides forever. I'll ask you to do something uncomfortable. You probably have to be an adult with a few years on you to maybe fulfill this assignment. But I ask you to think about the worst day of your life so far in terms of suffering, pain, and loss. I wonder what comes to mind. If you say, well, nothing really. My life has been pretty good. God bless you. Because the day will come when you will think of something. But there are some who can think of things that for them are as searing and as difficult as the memories our nation has of a place called Pearl Harbor or of the 9-11 attacks on our country in 2001. And if you have no such day to tell about, just count yourself fortunate because your day could well come soon. For those of you who can think of something, I dare say it probably involves the death of someone close to you. It might involve a major financial loss, a fire, a tragic accident, a medical prognosis that was dire for you. And I certainly would not minimize anyone's personal pain or the magnitude of it in your own experience, but I think I can say it's a fairly safe estimate that no one here has been stripped of a vast fortune amounting to multi-millions or even a billion in one day, and in that same day, no one here has lost ten children. We're staggered by the volume of suffering that God allowed to be poured into Job's little cup. Staggered. In two previous weeks, we've met a man of exceptional character, zealous to worship, upright, blameless before his peers. Then we got this glimpse of the strange scene behind the scenes, as it were, in the council of God, where of all things Satan appeared and asked to attack Job and was actually allowed to do that. Because Satan said, well, here's a man, like every man, who is really, in the end of all things, self-centered. He's not God-centered, and I'll show you. Well, it seems that Satan's experiment did not succeed. 
And by the way, let me tell you that we've heard of Satan the last time in the book of Job. Beyond the middle of chapter 2, he disappears because he lost his wager. But here we have Job put on trial, ignorant of what's going on, ignorant of heavenly counsels about him. And we read of him speaking something that jumps off the page. It jumps off my Bible's page. I hope it jumps off your page. Verse 21 of chapter 1. One of the most amazing statements by a human being made in the Bible. I don't exaggerate to say that. One of the most exalted faith declarations you can possibly imagine. When Job, in this situation, says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing. It takes my breath away that a man can worship God on that plane in this situation in which he finds himself. Worship was Job's spontaneous response to the most awful multiple tragedies that could possibly befall him. And worship is going to remain his cornerstone and his platform throughout this book, even though he will get depressed, he will be overcome with questions, he will get confused, he will argue, he will even get mad. He will not stop worshiping. And worship will be the posture we will find Job in at the end of this book. Now, if we ask, how is that possible? Could I possibly obtain true praise like Job in a situation of great loss, great pain? Let's explore it a minute. I have just two main points, but subpoints under each. A few years ago, my wife and I rented a film. I couldn't even remember the name of it, but the film was very memorable. It was called The Impossible. It traced a true story of one family in 2004 in an event that was a cataclysmic, that's the only word to use for it, a cataclysmic event that I am surprised that most of you probably don't even remember that it happened and claimed 250,000 lives. The earthquake and tsunami in South Asia of 2004. 250,000 lives! Amazing. That's half the population of Lancaster County. Wiped out. This film followed one family and what happened to them. Special effects, digital special effects, of course, had to be conjured to make the tsunami wave believable. And oh, it was believable. A wave from the ocean many stories high. And I, I was interested in the way they did it because... As the winds picked up and people started to look towards the ocean and realize something strange was happening, they didn't immediately just run. They stood and watched this thing come. It was so utterly out of context of anything they had ever seen before. They were transfixed as a many stories high tidal wave swept over them and over the idyllic Oceanside Hotel in Thailand where they were staying. A wall of water. Well, Job had at least three walls of water come over him. I'm going to quickly describe them here. 
speak a bit about them. One was the loss of all his wealth and possessions and children. That was bad enough. Second was the onset of painful physical disease in his body. And third, you might not have even noticed, but that was important, the experience of being emotionally forsaken by his wife and closest companion. First of all, this big smash-up in verses 13 to 19, four independent messengers. And you notice the way the text describes them, one arriving right on the tail of the other. The one barely gets his report finished, and the next one comes in, and the next one comes in. And everything. Remember, if you, if you weren't with us, look back at the beginning of chapter 1 at the description of how many thousand sheep and thousand camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. This man was fabulously wealthy. He was a billionaire in his time. All wiped out. Servants killed. But then the worst thing of all, the four corners of the house of his oldest son is struck down by a whirlwind or a tornado and all killed. Now these things had immediate causes other than the hand of Satan coming against Job with God's permission. They had causes in the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who conducted these raids and murders. They had causes in the lightning that fell and started the grass fires that consumed the sheep. The wind that came, you could call those natural things. I think that insurance adjusters still today write those things down as acts of God. If you've got an insurance policy, it probably has the phrase, the acts of God in it somewhere. Don't we assume that if God is involved in our life, that we have a guarantee of a safe life, a comfortable life? We have a catastrophic car accident and someone is injured, maybe your foot is crushed or even has to be amputated in worst case, and you, you think of that horrible thing, you say, oh, how did, I, how did this terrible misfortune... And we don't even think of the literal thousands and thousands of times in our lives when we're humming along at 60 miles an hour and somebody's at 65 miles an hour next to us and a turn of the wrist the wrong way or not glimpsing something. I've got this new feature on my car that that has a camera that shows me the blind spot. Wow, is that nice. There's no more blind spot. But how many people have died because of the blind spot in their car? And you know, it could very easily be that we 25 or 50 times in our lives would have had a catastrophic car accident somewhere between Lancaster and Philadelphia on that turnpike. But we think, oh, God owes me a safe life, a comfortable life. Those things aren't going to happen. And if they do, one time out of a thousand, God, why did you let me down? Job lost physically all that he owned and all of his family in that first smash-up. Then the second wave that comes, we have to be brief today, Satan found that Job didn't crumble under that first attack, and he utters this strange phrase. The Hebrew scholars are a little bit unsure. They scratch their heads. What does skin for skin mean? I think we kind of at least get the general idea. I let you strike him outwardly, but Satan says, let me strike him inwardly. Not just superficially, but the inner man. Let me strike him there, and then I'll show you, God. Let me penetrate his physical body. I'll touch the very core of his being where he lives, and then you'll hear your godly man squeal like a stuck pig. 
That was Satan's thought anyway. Pain, physical pain is a terrible thing. If you've had it, rheumatoid arthritis or a skin disease that itches all the time or cancer that is eating away at an organ and the pain has to be subdued by powerful drugs. Pain takes us out of ourselves. You, you can't think of anything else. It distracts you all the time. And you can't even rationally concentrate on things. Here Job is described as sitting among the ashes. We don't know what these ashes were. It might have been the town dump because that's a place where lepers went if, if this was leprosy, and we don't know that for sure. If you had a skin disease in ancient time, you had to be socially isolated. And either Job is sitting there in a waste ground somewhere in the part of town where nobody else wanted to be, where the garbage fires burned to ash, or maybe, I like one commentator's speculation that he went to his older son's house, which had collapsed and burned, and he was sitting there in the ashes where all ten of his children had perished in pain. And he couldn't think of anything. Can you imagine having a skin disease so bad that that a sharpened piece of clay pottery, you wanted to scrape yourself from head to toe? That's pain, folks, of a most awful kind. It, It affects not just what you possess, but what you are. But then comes this third thing, and you can almost miss it. Job had a wife. Now think about the fact that Mrs. Job, don't know what else to call her, shared in everything that happened to him, right? She gave birth to those ten children. Her loss was certainly as great as her husband's was. She had been the matriarch of a wealthy family, able to to stage fine dinners and entertain in great style and, and live in comfort. And if we assume this was a good marriage, and I think we can, that she was a godly woman who was a support and helper and companion to her husband, now even her relationship with her husband is disrupted. And she turns, not in comfort, not to embrace him, not to weep on his shoulder, but to say, husband, how can you still be praising God? Curse him. Curse God and die. A member of our congregation helpfully pointed out to me an article online about Job's wife. I appreciated receiving it. She generally gets a bad rap. We say, poor Job, he had this cynical, pessimistic wife. Well, folks, stop and think. This poor woman had lost all her children and all her possessions. And her husband was in a a terribly isolating, diseased state What would you expect of her? Let's show her some compassion. And you know, I wonder if Job's remarks to her, it does say he rebuked her. You can rebuke a person in love. It isn't always in anger. I wonder if Job's rebuke wasn't more loving than we think. Maybe he was saying, sweetheart, you're really not sounding like the godly woman that I know you are. I know you're not yourself after everything that's happened. Let's cling to God together, cling to his promises, and look for his goodness. God is still at work. Well, however we construe them, these three tidal waves have swept over Job. And now I want to look in the remaining time 
at his response to them for the time being. That response is going to shift and change and move as he gets involved in debates with others in the succeeding chapters. But let's just look at it for right now. It's in two places here, and it's roughly the same thing in slightly different wording. Job 121 and Job 2.10 shows us a man worshiping amid the ashes. As I said, we don't know where he's sitting, but it's said ashes. He's sitting in this sad place. What was he thinking? Was he thinking, who should I blame? That wasn't really too hard. You can certainly blame Sabaeans and Chaldeans and be mad at them. You can blame the lightning. We think fire of God falling from heaven was a lightning storm that lit the prairie and caused the sheep to panic and be burned up. You could blame the tornado that made the house fall down. Maybe you could blame the zoning officers who didn't, you know, enforce a stronger house. But Job took the blame not to superficial things. He took it all the way to the root because Job was a big-scale thinker. He didn't think small. And he said, if there's anybody responsible here, I know who it is. Of course. It's my sovereign God. My God who created everything, who controls everything, who measures everything, who pulls the levers and pushes the buttons for everything. My God is the first cause of all causes. He superintends every event on heaven and earth. So God is involved here. Will I curse him, as my wife suggests? Or will I relate to him as I have always related to him? as my sovereign, my all in all, the one who cannot do wrong, who cannot be charged with error. And so he says this wonderful declaration that I so admire. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. Everything I've had in my life, in other words, is a gift. It was never mine to begin with. I held on to it temporarily, but I had to let go. Big deal. The Lord gave... The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job did not say this because he knew why things happen. And you see, we're going to constantly be bringing to the book of Job as we study it that question, why? Now, he got into it later, but right now he, he wasn't into that question. He said he knew his God, and knowing his God who was a sovereign God, was enough. He knew that his God was not a tyrant, not a sadist, not a deceiver, not a bully. We sang a hymn, and it struck me when I sang it in the first service, how it relates. It was chosen because it relates, but the second verse of Margaret Clarkson's 20th century hymn, this is written 30 years ago. Job lived about 3,000 years ago. Second verse, you sang it. You probably weren't thinking it all through. O Father, you are sovereign in all affairs of men. No powers of death or darkness can thwart your perfect plan. All chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Written 30 years ago, believed by Job, 3,000 years ago. Job, in effect, was saying, look, God is the God of truth. 
If he chooses to reveal to me why he's doing what he's doing, I will accept his revelation. I don't have it right now. If he chooses never to tell me, I will struggle with that, but I will try to accept that also because I'm going to allow my God to be God. How do we obtain this? How do we get this Job-like trust? Well, I want to just suggest one thing to you here today. That's, it's actually a very obvious thing, but you might not see it. Look back at chapter 1 and see what Job had been doing, something that characterized the whole man in verse 5 of chapter 1. It tells us about Job the worshiper, how he would offer sacrifices and burnt offerings and pray proactively on behalf of his children. He was a man of prayer, a man of worship, and it gives us the impression that Job habitually, day by day by day, came before the Lord, humbled himself before the Lord. You see, that's really part of the answer here. This man was so habitually a worshiper a man who bowed all the time before God, that worship was blended right into his character. It was his practiced response by long routines and daily devotional exercises. Job, you could say, had been in training for his day of disaster his whole life by being a worshiper. So that when the day came and he was so struck and amazed by what was come down upon him, he just did the things that he had always done, worship. Who's in charge? God. Who's behind this? God. How do you know that? Because I've worshiped him every day of my life. And my natural posture before him is to bow low in humility and submission. Job was like the Olympic steeplechase racer who had raced down the course and jumped those hurdles so many times that now when he couldn't even think straight, his body and his mind and his soul were carried forward by the disciplines that he had so practiced before. If you think God was toying with Job, treating him like a pawn on the devil's chessboard, I think you're wrong. Job doesn't know what's going on yet. Remember, we we said last week, he doesn't know about this discussion in heaven about him. He's blind to all that. He has to act on faith. But I think there's a New Testament passage that applies here as I close today. It's what Jesus had to say to another sufferer, a New Testament sufferer, Peter. And Jesus addressed Peter the night before he went to the cross, calling him by his original name, Simon. Remember, little stone versus rock? And Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail, and when you turn back from that test, strengthen your brothers. Folks, that's our position. In a sense, we're in Job's position. We're in Peter's position. Satan has demanded to have us. Who's he anyway? He's such a loser, he disappears from the book of Job. Sure, he's that prowling lion who seeks to devour. We know all that. We also know he's on God's leash. 
and can do nothing but what God permits him to do. And we have a Savior who has prayed for us that our faith may not fail. Every hard test, every stroke of suffering that comes our way has been sifted through the hands of our faithful God. And we also know that Christ himself has gone before us to his cross of suffering that was an utter hell. You think Job suffered? Job had a walk in the park compared to Jesus. Our Savior suffered, the Bible says, over and over and over for us, for us, for us, on our behalf. So that we can say when the fires seem hot and the smoke is dense around our heads and the ashes are deep, my God is for me. Naked I came into this world and naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May God teach you that vocabulary of faith from Job. Father, there are sufferers of all kinds here before me. I know some of the stories. If I knew any more, they might overwhelm me. The stories of physical pain, of sudden death, of accidents, tragedies, lost jobs, financial challenges, relationships broken. Will you teach us to be Job? And we can be that because of him who suffered all things on our behalf to win over the evil one who desires to destroy us. In the victory of Jesus, teach us to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.